to When the Stars Disappear, a podcast that looks to scripture for guidance when our lives seem covered by darkness, leaving us feeling as if all of the beliefs that have been guiding us have disappeared and thus unable to understand life or know what to do. Our guide as we address these issues is Mark Talbot, a professor of philosophy at Wheaton College. Mark suffered a paralyzing accident when he was 17 and now is writing a four-volume series on suffering and the Christian life. The first two volumes, When the Stars Disappear and Give Me Understanding That I May Live, are available now from Crossway and wherever books are sold. Mark's conversation partner for this episode is Carl K.J. Johnson. K.J. is a retired Marine Corps officer who now directs the C.S. Lewis Institute in Chicago, where he oversees programs that foster discipleship of heart and mind, specifically the C.S. Lewis Fellows Program. In this, the final episode of season one of When the Stars Disappear, Mark and KJ wrap things up by explaining how our accepting Christ's work through faith results in renewed fellowship with God, and how Jesus' bodily resurrection assures us that behind the sin, suffering, and death that we see lies a greater and much more glorious reality that will be revealed on the day when Christ returns. Let's listen in. Well, Mark, we closed our last session with a bit of a preview of what we're going to discuss today, which is actually the last episode of this first season of the podcast, When the Stars Disappear. Now, you you said we'd wrap up this season's episodes by explaining how accepting Christ's work through faith results in the renewal of our fellowship with God and in the restoration of our life with Him in Christ, and that also we'd see how Our Lord's resurrection assures us that behind the sin, suffering, and death that we see all around us lies a greater and much more glorious reality. The reality that what appears to be the ironclad causal laws of science are, in fact, mere causal regularities that God is sustaining until the day when Christ returns. Yes, uh, this really is a fitting climax to close our first season, K.J., because these two themes, how our faith in Christ's earthly work renews our fellowship with God and restores our life with him in Christ, along with what our Lord's resurrection means, are really two of the most glorious truths of the Christian faith. I'm eager to get started then. When we receive God's grace by trusting in our Lord's earthly work, two blissful consequences become ours, as Paul tells us in Romans chapter 5. Okay. First, as he says in the very first verse, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Our faith in Christ's propitiatory work reconciles us to God. We are then reinstated into God's favor and fellowship. C.E.B. Cranfield, one of the greatest of the 20th century's New Testament commentators, writes that the first 11 verses of Romans 5 affirm, and now I'm quoting him, affirm the amazing truth that God's undeserved love has, through Christ, transformed us from being God's enemies into being his friends. Wonderful claim. The first 11 verses of Romans 5 affirm the amazing truth that God's undeserved love for us has, through Christ, transformed us from being God's enemies into being his friends. That's because, from God's standpoint, 
as Cranfield explains, justification and reconciliation are inseparable. He tells us, he observes that human judges may not have any personal relationship with those who appear before them. He says they may neither have personal hostility if the accused is found guilty, nor friendship if the accused is acquitted. Yet, yet Cranfield emphasizes God's relationship with us is always personal. God's justification, he states, involves a real self-engagement with the sinner on God's part. God's justification involves a real self-engagement with the sinner on God's part. He does not confer the status of righteousness upon us without at the same time giving himself to us in friendship. Wow. You know, that that reminds me of the John Stott statement you brought up in our last episode. I think I'm getting this right. God gave himself to save us from himself. And then you added that that it would be for himself. So as as pithy as that that sounds, I think this idea of self-engagement is really helpful. Um, Because it seems that you're... You're saying that God, and here I'm, I'm going to mix my metaphors, is not simply a transcendental judge who has paid our tab from afar, but he pulls up a chair and joins us for dinner. That's a really nice metaphor, KJ. And in fact, it's more than a metaphor. Since our Lord himself says in the last book of Scripture, in Revelation, here I am. I stand at the door and knock. Mm. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door... I will come in and eat with that person, and they with me. That's good. We could restate the point this way. By means of our Lord's cross work, God has reopened the way for us to enjoy fellowship with him. A central theme of all of our episodes from episode 8 onwards has been that as creatures made in God's image, we are made for intimate personal communication and communion with other persons, intimate personal communication and communion with both God and other human beings. And now we're seeing how the communication and communion we were made for is being restored through Christ's redeeming work. Now, as Paul puts it in the second verse of Romans chapter 5, Now we have obtained our introduction into this grace in which we have taken our stand. That, John Stott tells us, refers to our privileged position of acceptance by him. We take our stand, we could say, either in or on this grace, either in or on this grace, recognizing that as justified believers, we now, as Stott continues, enjoy a blessing far greater than a periodic approach to God. Mm -hmm. Our relationship with God, into which justification has brought us, Stott stresses, is not sporadic, but continuous, not precarious, but secure. We do not fall in and out of grace like courtiers who may find themselves in and out of favor with their sovereign. We might put it this way. We are not on probation. Mm. 
we are not on probation. By means of the new covenant established by our Lord's blood, we know we will receive the eternal inheritance that God has promised to those who believe. And since, as we saw last week, nothing is now able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord, we can rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Well, that, that's powerful. And I'm not using that term lightly here. It's, it's literally powerful. Because after the discussions you and I have had about suffering, I think this reminder really has to become foundational in our thinking. And by that, I mean, no matter what we experience or feel, our relationship status doesn't change. And I know that sounds sort of like a, a social media descriptor, but there, there really should be real peace knowing that our justified status doesn't change. It remains the same. That's right. In addition, our spiritual lifeline is restored because of our Lord's obedience. For just as one trespass, as it's put, in fact, in chapter 5, verse 18 of Romans, for just as one trespass, one deliberate act of rebellion against an explicit command, severed that lifeline and resulted in condemnation and death for all people, so one righteous act, our Lord's doing his Father's will by enduring the cross and despising the shame, that righteous act, that one righteous act, restored it and has resulted in justification and life for all who believe. It's restored that lifeline and thus has resulted in justification and life for all who believe. And here, in fact, Paul stresses, as he says in the first half of verse 15 of chapter 5 of Romans, the free gift that we receive through Christ's earthly work is not like the trespass. For as he writes in verses 15 to 17 of Romans chapter 5, if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by that grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For if, because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Here's the way that Doug Moo puts it in his really fine commentary on Romans. He says that anyone who receives the gift that God offers in Christ finds security and joy in knowing that the reign of death has been completely and finally overcome by the reign of grace, righteousness, and eternal life. Hmm. And the reason is that alongside the condemnation that came through Adam's sin, there is, Mu goes on, there is the grace of God. And since it is precisely God's grace, there is, I love this, there is a superabundance connected with God's gift in Christ that has the power not only to cancel the effects of Adam's work, but to create positively, life and peace. 
Oh, could you say a little bit more about that, Mark? I, I'm a bit concerned that these are overly familiar terms and ideas that those of us who uh, hear them regularly in church, we we can lose our sense of their weightiness and their importance and their implications. Yes, in fact, it seems to me, KJ, it's always important for us to keep great truths like these from seeming pedestrian. Exactly. One of the ways that Moo tries to do this is by reminding us that we received this gift of life only by faith. For as Moo notes, there is an important difference between the reigns of death and life. Death, he says, has the character of fate. Adam and Eve did not explicitly choose death when you think about it. It and the suffering that precedes death followed on their choice to disobey. The reign of life, on the other hand, Moo comments, is experienced through choice and personal decision. It is for those who receive the gift. For those who receive the gift, righteousness and life are for those who respond to God's grace in Christ. Righteousness and life are for those who respond to God's grace in Christ, and they are only for those who respond. That response is, as I would put it, the obedience of faith, and therefore to disbelieve is to disobey. Mm. Romans 1 through 4 emphasize our reception of Christ's redeeming work through faith. Chapters 5 through 8 emphasize the life that is ours when we receive Christ's work. As I wrote in chapter 3 of Give Me Understanding That I May Live, after Adam and Eve opened the door to human suffering by their disobedience, the way forward to the restoration of full communion with God became a pathway strewn with suffering and death, the very point that we've been stressing. So after, in fact, they opened the door to human suffering by their disobedience, the way forward to the restoration of full communion with God became a pathway strewn with suffering and death, culminating in the suffering and death of our Lord. In Adam, we are all children of wrath who are spiritually dead in our transgressions and sins. But now, verse 21 of chapter 3 of Romans, but now, because of our Lord's redeeming work, the way back to life and the future establishment of full face-to-face communion with him has reopened if we choose by faith to be in him rather than in Adam. For as Paul puts it in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 22, as in Adam all die, so in Christ shall all be made alive. Henri Blochet sums it up this way. He gives life, his life, for the wages of our sin was his death. Mm. He gives life, his life, for the wages of our sin was his death. I, I love I love me some Blochet, but you said something in there that really struck me, Mark. To disbelieve is to disobey. 
I've never thought of it that way, but it makes perfect sense. I, I've thought of it as rejection, rebellion, even neglect, but never as disobedience. It seems to me it's an important insight with regard to all of this. And so all of that, in fact, leads to our second theme for this final episode of season one, namely what our Lord's resurrection means, what it tells us about the nature of reality and thus about the certainty of our hope. Yeah, this is important. Like you said before about the danger of things becoming too pedestrian, it's been my experience that too many of us do not understand what the resurrection means or what it tells us. In my experience, it seems like too many of us want the fire insurance, the vision of we're going to get out of hell. <laughs> and, and the resurrection means so much more than that. And, and we ended up sidestepping the demands it puts on us, or we neglect the hope it offers us when the proverbial clouds begin to roll in. I think that's right. As we've just seen, Paul juxtaposed Adam and Christ in verses 12 through 19 of Romans 5, and he juxtaposes them again in 1 Corinthians 15, where he's talking about our Lord's resurrection and our future resurrections. In Romans 5, Paul contrasts the disastrous consequences of Adam's disobedience with the blessed consequences of our Lord's obedience. As he puts it in verse 19 of chapter 5 of Romans, For as by one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Hmm. In some profound way, in Adam's disobedience, we all have, as Jeremiah declared, turned our backs to God and not our faces. Part of it is that like Adam, We've all transgressed God's law and been faithless to him, but somehow there's more to it than just that. Yet in any case, each of us has given God the cold shoulder, stiffened our necks, stopped our ears, and made our hearts diamond hard rather than listen to him and obey. By contrast, our Lord was utterly obedient from the moment of his miraculous conception. When he came into the world, he said, as the author of Hebrews quotes from Psalm 40, sacrifice and offering you you did not desire, but a body you prepared for me. Then I said, here I am, I have come to do your will, my God. God the Son, became incarnate so that he could do his father's will. His posture was one of obedience to the point of death, even death on a cross. That posture is righteousness. And by Christ's posture, all who believe the gospel, all who choose to be in Christ rather than in Adam will be made righteous. This is such neglected thinking, Mark. In my own ministry work and discipleship, I really emphasize union with Christ and the fact that we're in Christ. Because what I'm seeing is the more common vision of belief is a transactional one. We believe, we change our relationship status to Christian, kind of like we'd align ourselves with a political party or a college football team. 
But this idea that we are in Christ, I've seen more and more is so crucial. So I'm glad to see that you're emphasizing this. First Corinthians 15 emphasizes the fruit of these two postures. The fruit of Adam's disobedience was universal condemnation and death. But the fruit of Christ's obedience is justification and resurrection life for all who believe. Through our Lord's earthly work, God the Father has delivered us, as Paul writes in Colossians, from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Hmm. Wonderful claim. Through our Lord's earthly work, God the Father has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Because of Christ, grace reigns through righteousness, leading to eternal life. And Christ will reign, Paul tells us, until he's put all his enemies under his feet, where the last enemy to be destroyed is death. Under the sun, as the preacher of Ecclesiastes has hammered home, death's dominion seems complete. It appears to be the final victor, the last word that exposes the vanity and futility of everything. It appeared, in fact, to be the final victor for a few days, even with our Lord, as two of his disciples lamented on the road to Emmaus after his crucifixion, when they said to him, while they still didn't recognize him, we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. In whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Yeah, Colossians has long been one of my favorite of Paul's letters. Yet, we need to realize that death is not the last word. Right. As Paul insists, the fact that our Lord was raised from the dead is proof that death will be swallowed up in victory. That's why believing that Christ was raised is the core of true Christian faith. As Paul writes in the third and fourth verses of 1 Corinthians 15, he says to the Corinthians, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. Indeed, as Romans 10.9 makes clear, you remember we've quoted it more than once, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. As Romans 10.9 makes clear, that, in fact, is the message on which we must take our stand and by which we are being saved. We must confess with our mouths that Jesus is Lord. Openly declare, as the New Living Translation puts it, in other words, to people um, in the world, we need to openly declare that Jesus is Lord and believe in our hearts. In other words, believe it deeply as a reality that God has raised him from the dead. And so and only so will we be saved. This is... This is the glory of Easter morning, isn't it, Mark? I mean, as we're recording this episode today, Easter's fast approaching. 
And I recently recalled the words of C.S. Lewis in a letter about Easter where he says, quote, away with tears and fears and troubles, united in wedlock with the eternal Godhead itself, our nature ascends into the heaven of heaven. So it would be impious to call ourselves miserable. On the contrary, man is a creature whom the angels, were they capable of envy, would envy. Let us lift up our hearts. Yes, that's, that's exactly right, KJ. And that passage from Lewis makes it clear that it is not merely or even primarily our Lord's resurrection that constitutes the first Easter morning's good news. For Paul's thinking is resolutely future-oriented. That's right. Always That's right. keeping in mind our resurrection as one of the world's final events, as part of the third and final great turning point in human history. So to confess that our Lord was raised on that first Easter morning is to believe that in raising his son, God the Father has thereby set in motion a series of events that have to do with the defeat of death for all of us who believe in our Lord's redeeming work. As John Owen put it in one of his greatest works, we see the death of death in the death of Christ. We see the death of death in the death of Christ. What exactly does that mean? What are its implications? It means that death is not the final reality. It means that the causal regularities that God put in place at creation in order to make the world a humanly inhabitable place and which now, because of our first parent's sin, are complicit in bringing us suffering, sickness, and death that those causal regularities are not reality's final word. It implies that the preacher's apparent pessimism through most of Ecclesiastes, the pessimism that leads him to declare that from an under-the-sun, exclusively secular standpoint, everything human appears as evanescent. That pessimism, um, which would say that everything is mere nothingness, that that pessimism is a radically incomplete and false perspective. It implies that when our resurrected Lord returns in a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, as Paul puts it in verse 52 of 1 Corinthians 15, in a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, the heavens and the earth will melt away, and it will be inescapably clear that Jesus is Lord. What now look like ironclad laws of nature will then be seen for what they really are mere causal regularities that God is holding in place until our Lord returns to gather his people. That's, that is supremely comforting. And in, I mean that on a, on a personal level. You recall on a previous episode, I mentioned losing my brother, my little brother to cancer years ago. And I really find solace in the fact that death has been defeated. I, I really was crushed losing him because he's my only sibling. But I think I'd have fallen into some form or level of despair without 
this to be able to cling on to. God the Father's raising his son from the dead was the fruit of Jesus' perfect, unswerving obedience. His resurrection is the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep, uh, of all of the Christians who have died or will die. And thus it serves as a kind of guarantee for the full harvest. So for us who are in Christ, sickness, suffering, and death are only an interim word and not the last or final word. God has identified us as his own by placing the Holy Spirit in our hearts as the first installment that guarantees everything he has promised us. We can rest assured that if the Spirit of him, as Paul puts it in Romans 8, verse 11, we can rest assured that if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in us, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to our mortal bodies through his spirit. The spirit bears witness, not only to the fact that we have become God's children, but also to the fact that on the day when our Lord returns, the day of consummation or the future day of the Lord, God will release creation from the bondage to corruption and the futility to which he has subjected it. Then creation itself will obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God, as Paul puts it in Romans 8.21. So creation itself eagerly awaits our revelation as God's children. It groans with us. It groans with us who have the first fruits of the Spirit as we wait eagerly for the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope, Paul says, in this hope, the hope of the redemption of our bodies as God's adopted children, in this hope, we were saved. The fruit of our Lord's obedience is everlasting, embodied life for us, along with the restoration of all things. You know, Mark, I think it would be an understatement if I said I cannot wait for the day of the Lord. Like Paul, I seek to be content in all things, but, and I know I don't have to tell you this given your own trials, this world gets wearying and each and every loss takes a toll. Even when we don't lose sight of the stars, it it still weighs heavy. Uh, That's right. And, And it weighs heavy in such a way, KJ, that it, it, prompts us to lift our eyes and to see through the stars that God has put in place in Scripture what will finally happen, that the day star of Christ will someday rise. In the beginning, at creation, all was pristine. Because of Adam and Eve's disobedience, everything is now marred by sickness, suffering, and death. Yet by his life and death, our Lord conquered death and thus will halt life's funeral procession. So for those in Christ, everything will be pristine once again at the end in the consummation. That's such a beautiful promise. You know, I, I really marvel at how the Apostle Paul remained 
not only content but joyful given his laundry list of sufferings in 2 Corinthians. And the older I get, the more the thought of resting in Christ becomes sweeter and sweeter. I really, I really long for that moment. But that sounds like something we could discuss more in the future. And speaking of the future, this is the final episode, Mark. What's, what's in store for the future of the podcast? Well, after a break, we'll start a second season. Uh, subscribing to the podcast may be worthwhile for our listeners since, in fact, we may occasionally record an episode during that break and subscribing to the podcast will inform them when and if it happens. When we get back to regular podcasting, it's unclear to me now whether we'll go back to fill in the details from these first two volumes of my Suffering in the Christian Life series or if we'll go on to anticipate the content of the third volume. But in the meantime, I want to express my deep thanks to UKJ and to John Bash and to Paul Winters for the parts of all three of you in bringing this podcast to life. To our listeners, so long for now. We hope to see you in a couple of months. listening to When the Stars Disappear as Mark and KJ discuss the crucial and transformative power of Christ's resurrection. Mark's conversation partner for this episode has been Carl Johnson. If you found this content helpful, please let us know by leaving a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Your review will help others find these discussions as well. And if you have any questions about what was discussed in this episode, email us at info at whenthestarsdisappear.com. We're working on an episode to answer your questions now, and we'd love to be able to address your question. Also, make sure to subscribe to the show so you don't miss season two. This is Lauren Susanto on behalf of Mark and KJ, thanking you for listening to When the Stars Disappear.